Welcome to the first episode of Restages Go to Masters podcast where we interview the GTM leaders from today's most dynamic companies. The unique insights, hard-earned lessons and innovative vision are the stories that we bring to you every week. I'm your host Venkat, Director of RevOps at Everstage and we are pleased to have with us today Lorena. Lorena is an innovative marketing leader with expertise in creative strategy, content marketing, operations and digital marketing. Her areas of specialization include strategy, operations, and enablement. She currently holds the position of Director of Global Digital Marketing Revenue Operations at JLL. Hey, Lorena, it's great to have you here. Can you give our listeners a brief introduction about yourself? Sure, Bengad. Th- thank you for, for having me here. Um, I think everyone that talks RevOps, it's, uh, it's a star on my books already because um, I, I believe in the methodology and I'm one of the originals, as I call myself. Um, so yeah, a little bit about me. I am currently the, the Director of Global Digital Marketing and Revenue Operations at JLL, or Jones Lang LaSalle, as many people know it. It's a real estate company, um, over around uh, 110,000 employees, probably a little less. Um, and and I my, my job function is, is really, it was hard to understand at the very beginning, and I think it has started to to have shape, shape and form, because I, I've I've experienced different managers in in this in this time that I've been with them, and with each manager it came the need to educate and re-educate each one of them to what was revenue operations going to be like at JLL, and first I understood that since it's a multinational company with teams all over the world, I knew that revenue operations was gonna be a little different in here. So we're, we're gonna talk about that, I think, through the podcast because people probably are gonna be interested in that. But uh, before that, I was actually on the consultancy space. I was the VP of marketing for, uh, for one of the first revenue operations as a service um, companies. And I was with them a little more than than three years, uh, almost four. And what I what I did was, pretty much opened the market for all these new companies starting to do revenue operations as a service because we didn't have that that entitlement. It was more, we were doing a lot of Salesforce work. So people started to tag us as almost like a Salesforce shop type of thing. And we were not happy about that because we knew that, yes, we could manage your Salesforce instance, we could manage your Marketo, your Eloqua, whatever that might be, your Pardo. But that didn't really define us because we were doing so much more than that. We were training leaders on like how to run effective meetings. We were we were really making sure that operators were having a seat at the table. We were training a lot of people in in becoming generalists. We so we what I'm trying to say with that is that we were doing so much more than just architecture your your CRM systems. And it was painful for me to see because I realized that in order to make people believe that this was going to be more than a, a buzzword, we needed to go after what, what would be our competitors in the future. So we started to have conversations with other companies to say, hey, could you be open to work with us on, on validating this thing that is called revenue operations and that businesses are going to need? And suddenly, a lot of people started to, to move around that. And, and I think the belief that there are like best practices, it's not entirely true yet because it's a very new methodology and it's a very new thing in the space. And I believe revenue 
patience is one of those things that when you really, really focus on it and you try to implement it, it becomes a function. So that's kind of the definition that I have for revenue operations. It's a, it's a methodology that becomes a function and that function it's in charge of all the, um, it can be, it can be different flavors, but it can, well, most likely is going to be managing your, operate, your operators and your GTM team or, or the frontliners. And so it has many variants in across the world, but uh, that's, that would be kind of one of, of the pieces that needs to be there along with customer centricity. Like it's a methodology that came to stay simply because and I feel I feel after COVID, it was this was especially true, where a lot of organizations started to say we can't be product focused anymore. Like we need to be customer centric. And I don't know. I don't ask me. I don't know why that didn't exist before, or it existed, but at a certain degree, not every organization was focusing on their customers. And I think thanks to the pandemic, we learned that the customer should be at the front of everything. And for me, it wasn't a, a novel to anything because I come from the world of design thinking, but um, where every single aspect needs to 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 be around the customer. Um, so for me, it wasn't a biggest a, a big surprise, but it was a moment of truth where I was like, "Thank you that this actually happened." Um, so yeah, I think I think I went a little far with that answer, but but yeah, Benka, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, but uh, if you think about it, I resonate with something that I really strongly believe in. If you think about it, RevOps, like any other operational thing, right? it's more about the people and the process than the, actually the tools. The tools will work if you have the people who believe in it and the process that works. So, I mean, you are basically covering that over your explanation, right? You were talking about, hey, I was working on sales first, but then it's it was not about building part of our sales for that we could do, but it was just about mm-hmm. people, you know, fixing the people and the process. Uh, but uh, coming from uh, a different domain, how has your transition been uh, coming to JLL? Uh, you covered it briefly in your introduction, but was that a big change for you or was it something that just needed a little bit of tweak in your uh, thought process or was it really very easy for you to jump into something like a JNL, uh, JLL for you? No, no, Venkat. I think, I think, well, first of all, nothing has been easy for me. Uh, people may may think that a lot of things have been given to me in a in a platter, but not necessarily. Like a, a lot of effort has been put into my career, especially my career that I feel sometimes defines me. Um, it wasn't easy, and the reason why it wasn't easy is because I've never been the technical person. I've never been the person in the systems. I I I, I used to crack, and I've said this repeatedly in, the, in different interviews. But I used to crack in 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 front of a marketo dashboard. Or a Salesforce dashboard for that sake, and um, it took a lot of people that believed in me to tell me, Lorena, you can actually understand this and you can become a practitioner. I don't think I'm ever gonna be the marketing operations master because it simply doesn't interest me. Like it's it's an aspect of a of a company that interests me broadly as a strategist. However, I'm not interested in like. The, the 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 details of like how the tool works per se. Um, I'm interested in like what those tools bring to the bigger picture and how people understand the efficiency of technology in strategic decisions um, within the marketing the marketing uh, field. Yeah. But um, it was it was a funny transition because I feel 
like most people in revenue operations come either from mops or from sales mm -hmm. operations mm -hmm. or subs um, because they are experts in that and they and they really know how to elaborate or how to manage a really complex uh, tool stack. And for me, I knew I wanted to be in revenue operations because I saw it becoming to life in many, many companies. And so I knew I wanted to stay there. I just didn't know what it would take in a global company. So when they offered me the opportunity, I, I honestly was a little nervous because I said to myself, how am I going to translate knowledge that I have to this multi-billion company that I, that I honestly have never worked for? And today, in retrospective, I think it was the right decision to make because I made people believers. And I think precisely because I don't come from from the operator's side of things, I think I have a little more <clears throat> empathy for the people that that, that are traditional marketers. Um, I believe that I'm, I'm here to break the, the enigma of like, you need to be on the systems in order to become an operator or, or a revenue operations pe person. I don't think that's the case. I think you need to understand that business holistically in order to become a revenue operator um, professionist. <clears throat> For me, I think most of the times I, I I have to pinch myself in the in the shoulder to to make sure that I'm that I'm living my life because it's a it's a very privileged position to be in in my shoes right now. Simply because number one, it's a great time to be in revenue operations, and I think it's a great time to be a marketer. And the combination between those two things make me a hybrid that you don't find that often. And I think what I am applying is mainly to the people aspect, as you mentioned, because I've always been moved by people. I think I think the first opportunity that I had to become a manager, I took it fully to its fullest. And I said to myself, I, I really do want to manage people and I want to understand what motivates them. And there, here I am focusing on, on revenue operations and trying to make the systems work and the data work and the compliance and the and the lead management piece of it and like the different things that I am touching now globally. But I think the main thing that I that I that made my transition easier, not easy, easier, um, was the fact that I work with multinational people. So I am in a room with at least four different accents including mine, that it's a really strong accent. So I think believing in people, it's what makes this, this revenue operations thing beautiful because now we're starting to see people around the world believing in revenue operations. This is not only an America's um, phenomenon anymore. It's just starting to gain a lot of track in Europe, for example, where a lot of small companies in the B2B space and large companies are starting to implement it. They are starting to ask the right the right questions. They are starting to hire the right people. So I don't think I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah, but explanation that you give, there is customer centricity <clears throat> and empathy and design thinking that that are actually really key if you think about it over long term. Right, you're always thinking of what the salespeople will do, will not do, what the marketers need, don't need. Will they use the product that I'm sending out? So. RevOps is not really the one that is facing the customer, but our customers become, you know, the salespeople, the marketers. And when you're thinking from mm -hmm. their hat, you always think of, okay, will they really need this? Are they going to need this? Am I bombarding them with too much information? So kind of, you know, flows from your entire journey, right? Your customer centricity, design thinking. I think 
Uh, I think it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, it's a fresh perspective for me as well. Just to you know, uh, segue into RevOps in depth, right? And and JLL is a uh, is a new uh, industry for a lot of us listeners, right? If, if you think about B two B SaaS, most of us know exactly how things are set up, right? And how things are bought, the purchasing committee, and so on and so forth. But how does it differ in a company like JLL? Uh, if you can shed some light on this, it will be very interesting. I think the biggest change that I experienced when talking about, for example, the tool stack that you just said on how how we buy technology, I think the first thing that that we saw on the SaaS space back but when I back when I was in SaaS was that we and and I, and I include myself on that like we love the shiny toys and the shiny objects, and I think. It, it happened so fast when a lot of solutions, like there was a solution for every single problem that you had in your organization. And with that came a lot of tech depth. And with that came a lot of uh, complex tool stacks that were really hard to unravel. And I think if, if there's a benefit, I mean, I, I sometimes say that the downside of being in a, in a global company is that things move a little slower. And it is true, like it, it's it's kind of, hard to iterate it's kind of hard to do a sprinting and those things that i learned in the in my past life but one good thing that we have is that we're actually very intentional on how we buy technology i think a very strict finance department sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes the the scrutinized around tools can potentially be a good thing because you are forced to utilize what you have and work with that and there's no uh, band-aids for things like you need to make sure that you're creative to kind of say okay if this is the the tool stack that I have I need to make it work somehow and you start talking with people like understanding what is the, their biggest challenges how does the tool is fixing the challenges or how is the tool making it worse uh, or whatsoever and so I think that's kind of one of the main differences like we are very strategic on, on how we spend our dollars um, because these are multi-million contracts, right? Like it's not a tool that you can just test and then plug out after one year. These are multi-year and multi-billion, no, not billion, but multi-million dollars um, contracts that generally you see in the in in conglomerates like like JLL. That's that's I think uh, key, right? Even now, uh, I mean, after the you know the interest rates hike and the value reduction and all that. There, are, there is actually pressures even here, like when we look at a purchase, I think we're asking ourselves 10 to 15 questions before we even make the next step. Uh, but interesting, I think that also squeezes in the last stop of every, uh, last drop out of every text uh, stack that you have, like any tool that you have, you make sure you ask the right questions and make sure it covers okay. everything. And then you then say, okay, this is pushed to the limits. I now need to look at a new tool because this can't really do this. Uh, I really right. resonate with that. Uh, I, I, I'll also move a little bit uh, to, uh, you know, ABM is something that I think you really are passionate about. So I just wanted to make sure I slip in a question here before, you know, you leave. Uh, so uh, from RevOps, which is, you know, my domain and, you know, ABM is something we are also starting on. So what do you think is a RevOps role in ABM? How do you think uh, data that's integrated in all of the tech stack in one place is going to help ABM? Like, what is your view on like RevOps, ABM and so on and so forth. Keen to look at your thoughts after your move to say RevOps role now. It's a it's a loaded question, Venkat, because um, because revenue operations does have to do with with ABM a lot, 
people think that they are kind of cousins, but I think they are more like brothers uh, or siblings because they are so close to each other or you can benefit from one and the other one uh, merging them together. Um, both of them at the end are, again, customer-centricity methodologies. ABM does not work if you do not obsess around your customer. ABM does not work if you don't align yourselves and marketing teams and maybe even your, your product team because they are going to inform the content and they are going to inform a lot of the a lot of the go-to-market motions. Um, so I think I think when you, when you tell me like the tool stack, I think people tend to think that number one, doing ABM means I need to have the money to invest in the tools. And not necessarily, like we're, we're starting, we're, we're joining the ABM motion um, at JLL, where we're kind of giving our first steps toward, towards it. And we don't have a very sophisticated tool stack. Like we, we have the tools that we need, as I said before, but we don't have every single solution for the ABM in space. And I think when we talk ABM, we're talking, let's define what is ABM. Because for me, a lot of people call it ABX. Um, for me, it's actually ABR, account-based revenue. Because when we say account-based marketing, you're implying that marketing needs to be accountable for everything that happens around that, uh, that GTM strategy. And it's not true because I think marketing and sales should be both accountable for the revenue that comes to, to, through the company or through the funnel. Um, so to your point, I don't think it's, it's a tool stack per se alignment. Like, yes, you need to, to align the data and you need to align the, the, the tools that you have at your disposal. But more than that, you need to, to understand that you need to have the, the A players in your team. You need to find allies. You need to start with someone that believes in it. Um, interesting enough, I'm going right now through through a book um, from the Snowflake team that is called Busting Silos, and it talks precisely about this, like how they refer as a IBM, they refer to it as the marketing team that is working in, a, in an account-based strategy, but the account-based team is sales and marketing. And so that those definitions is where you start. Like, how do I make sure that I speak the right language with my internal team that are ultimately going to be your 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 players in this in this space? So I think I think when I started to do ABM back in 2000, I think it was 16, when we recognized that given our our ACBs, we needed to migrate to a, an account-based strategy. It was the moment when I saw that I was gonna be having the conversations, the tough conversations with sales. I never had that opportunity before because I, I, I was not touching quotas. I was not touching anything that had to do with compensation. And ABM um, and revenue operations combined, they do look after those things. And you do need to have the conversations with the sales team on like your structure is gonna change. Because, for example, an account that would pro like the quota that you would receive from an account that would close in a 30, 60, 90 days sales cycle now effectively was going to change to a one year, two year cycle, but it was going to bring more revenue. But having that conversation on your personal life is going to change because your, your work is changing was one of the most unveiling conversations that I had on my life.
And so, and so with that, I, I think that's when I fell in love with ABM as well. Like for me, it was a world where the word alignment became stronger than ever. And people keep asking me like about how, how you align teams and how you align tools and how you align um, mindsets. I think what you need to understand first is the value that every single ingredient and component in your equation has, including your people, of course. So I think I think both of them are our siblings because both strategies bring the, the the biggest focus to the customer. Meanwhile, you are focusing on revenue. So both mm. those two things don't have to fight with each other. Like you 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 have to to kind of see them as as a as a twofolded thing, where on one side you have your people um, or your customer. And then on the other side, you have the, the the revenue that that person is going to bring to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, like the whole company, and then you have the customer. You don't have marketing, sales, revenue ops. Mm-hmm. You have you have a company that's basically trying to sell to a customer. Because Bankat, let let's face it, we have became extremely um, spoiled. As users, as, as customers, we we have became very spoiled in the sense of we don't accept less than yeah. what we want in that exact moment, in that exact second. If we go to the B2C world, the biggest learnings are in the B2C world that we just reject and we are just um, making our mindsets to say like we don't accept the B2C world, but like the biggest marketing campaigns and, and the biggest marketing strategies live there. Like. I was just telling this my to my partner, like the moment that Spotify or a, or a, big, a big company like that, that is doing marvelous things in marketing, don't show me the exact thing that I want. I get pissed. Like last week I was pissed at my Spotify because it was showing me a song that I didn't like. And I was like, I'm trying to train your AI in order to show me exactly what I want in the moment that I, that I want it. And I think when you trust, translate that to B2B, there's a lot from a lot from there that we could that we could see, for example, on personalization. How do you make sure that that you personalize an experience to not only an account, but to the contacts in that account? And how right. does you understand the buyer journey and how do you understand the buying group, which is something that a lot of people give for granted? Like they think passing leads to sales is still be effective. And it's not like at the end, ABM came because sales was already talking about accounts. It was a moment that marketing started to join the movement and say, okay, I'm gonna speak your language and let's talk about accounts. Let's stop talking about leads because the truth is sales doesn't care about leads. They don't care if you send them one person every, every, every 20 seconds. They care if you send them a buying group. They care if you understand who is the influencer, who is the ratifier, who is the X, Y, and Z. So I, I know I expanded a little more uh, as well, but uh, but I just wanted to say that because I think it's important for people to understand. Yes, uh, I completely agree. We are also finding out as we make our mistakes and learn from them. Uh, so yeah, just closing questions for the podcast. Uh, how do you keep updated on the latest trends and tech in the RevOps? Like, uh, do you open all the mails that come to you or do you read something? I think I, I did uh, the right thing on on my LinkedIn a, a while ago where I didn't discriminate who I was accepting in my network. I think I'm very protective of my personal accounts on like my Instagram and like my Twitter and like those things. But I was always very open with my LinkedIn and that created a network 
of really like-minded people and some of them are stars in the space and so i think my first go-to knowledge um base or like space to to get my my, my RevOps daily doses it's through linkedin um i i think there's a lot of 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 thinking around companies are starting to invest i i was just reading this about cisco that they are starting to invest on, on their employees becoming influencers in linkedin and i don't think it's a coincidence a lot of the loud voices created their brand on linkedin and um and i was at the right time in the right moment where i started to follow these people and they would follow me back and it created a, a knowledge base that that it's second to none um, other than that, I think podcasts, uh, I'm a sucker for podcasts. I think every single person created a podcast back in, back in post-pandemic because all the efforts needed to move to digital. So a lot of people started to, to find podcasting as a revenue generating or, or as an attribution channel that, that was going to be effectively converting into revenue. And a lot of the podcasts out, out there that's, that talk revenue operations are are gold, are pure gold out there. So I think those two, those two areas are, are my go-to for revenue operations knowledge. I'm also a sucker for podcasts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I listen to it when I cook, I do other things. Yeah, I listen to it. It's there playing in the background. Yeah. Uh, so where can people find you, uh, Lorena? I'm at uh, Morales Lorena or Lorena Morales in LinkedIn. And I'm at Morales Lorena SF in Twitter. So I, as I said, I'm, I'm very open in, in LinkedIn to connect. Um, if you want to sell to me, I'm not opposed to that, but just sell me in the right way and the, and the right time. I'm opposed to people uh, bombarding me with unrelatable messaging. I'm, I'm kind of sick of that, as many other people, um, of course. But um, I always say, if, you, if you're going to sell to me, sell me on the right way, and I'm going to be open for a conversation. If you just want to talk and chat about RevOps or, or ABM or immigrants or whatever you might want to talk to me, I'm your person and my door is always open. Thank you so much for your time. It was a delight to talk to you. Thank you, Venkat. It's been lovely to, to have you here. Well, that brings us to the end of this insightful episode of GoToMasters. Big thanks to Lorena for sharing her experience and valuable insights. I really enjoyed our conversation. Remember, you can tune in every week to learn more from game changers driving hyper-growth companies across the globe. Go to Masters is brought to you by Evestage, your trusted partners for transforming the way businesses handle sales commission and compensation. I'm your host, Venkat from Evestage, signing off. We'll see you in our next episode. And until then, it's goodbye.